Well, I hope, I pray that you arrived with a Bible this morning. If you did, I want to invite you once more to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we continue to look at this wonderful chapter that explains to us the value, the importance, the worth of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever just taken a walk through an old cemetery to look at the dates, read the inscriptions on the stones perhaps? I'm, I'm one of those weird people. I, I like that. I enjoy finding those little old tucked away cemeteries and reading the epitaphs and seeing the dates and finding the oldest stones. Cemeteries are interesting places. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's creepy. No, it's really not. They're so diverse. You go into some cemeteries and you'll find that they are overgrown, neglected, nearly forgotten. You'll go into others and you'll find that they are well kept and neat and trimmed and look more like a park. I've lived in several small communities where the cemetery was a very special place. Some of those families that I was ministering to and the church that I pastored would be four and five generations represented into that cemetery. And then there were those that were living and in my congregation. They had been there for a long time. It was an important place to them. It was, it was where they traced their heritage. Why all the fuss about cemeteries? I found myself wondering at one point. And as I visited with people, I found out, you know, when they went to the cemetery, it was more than just a place of grave sites. It was the place where they had gone and placed the remains of those they loved. Those who were significant in their lives. Those who were important to them. It was a place where they could come and smile and remember. And exchange stories with family members and, and share laughter. But you know, those cemeteries, the grave sites within them, are so different than the tomb of our Lord. When we go to that place of remembrance, we go and we remember that person because we know that this is where they were laid. I will never forget stepping through a tomb door in Jerusalem and seeing those empty places. Was it his tomb? Who knows? But it was a good representation. You see, the tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ is famous not for what it contains, but for what it does not contain. The angel got it right that first morning when he looked at the ladies and says, he's not here. He's risen. Jesus was raised from the dead. The, the facts nail it down. The eyewitness accounts confirm it. But what does that mean to us? I mean, here we are in the 21st century, something that happened all the way back in the first century. What does that mean to us? What meaning does it give? What value does the resurrection give to your life this morning? How does it change our existence? If you're a Christian, here's the reality. The resurrection of Jesus Christ ought to give meaning to everything you do. 
Every breath you take, every action you engage in, every word that you share should be impacted by that resurrection. If he was not raised, then we will not be raised. If he was not raised, then everything that we do is pointless and without hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the pivot point upon which all of existence turns. And this morning, we're going to look at Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 15. He continues this discussion. It's gotten pretty intense. It's not over yet. The intensity is going to continue to raise as Paul addresses in these verses what is happening in the minds of the people in Corinth as they are dealing with the concept of the resurrection and whether it happened or did not. If you've got your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to invite you, find verse 29. Once you've found that, if you can and will, if you're able, I invite you to stand with me in honor of our Heavenly Father as we read together this morning from His inspired Word. Chapter 15, beginning at verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Hear the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we dwell upon these, your words, I pray that you would give us truth. Open our eyes, help us to understand that which you would teach us today. And Father, as we hear the truth, I pray that it would be more than hearing it. I pray that we would embrace it. I pray that we would allow it to take root in our lives and transform us so that we might become more like the Jesus that we have placed our faith in. And Father, if there is one in this room who does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that today your spirit would touch their hearts. Put the glasses on them. Let them see the truth, know the truth, and own the truth personally. Father, have your way in our lives, for we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. I'm just going to tell you, 1 Corinthians 15 is a challenging passage. It's a challenging chapter. But throughout this chapter, Paul teaches the truth. That all we do without the resurrection would be pointless. There is no meaning in faith. There is no meaning in baptism, in service, in moral living. And as we dwell upon these verses... I find myself thinking back over the things I've already said, the verses that we've already read. Paul wanted his readers to see that the resurrection is not only of spiritual significance, but it also has great practical application for life. And these applications are brought to light in these verses that we've read together this morning. And I want you to stay right there. 
because we're not going to leave this place. We're going to stay right in this passage as we try to understand what Paul is saying. I, I want to begin by simply going back to what Paul says in verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, folks, without his resurrection... Our pledge to follow Christ, our profession of faith, our willingness to identify with him, it all means nothing. Now, I want to, I just got to go ahead and throw it open and tell you. Verse 29, it's one of the most controversial verses in the Bible. I know some of you are saying, yeah, I can't wait to see what he's got to say about this one. See if he can get out of it. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? I just want to tell you something. I dug on it. I, I did. I, I did my due diligence. I studied. I dug. I tried to figure. I'm just going to tell you, there are more interpretations of this verse than most of you would care to read and certainly would care to try and decipher and make sense out of. Over 50 different interpretations of this one particular verse. Some believe it refers to the concept, and, and certainly it does, of bag, baptism by proxy. Now you say, well, what in the world is that? Well, it's exactly what it says. That someone who is alive and well can be baptized in the place of someone else. Now, there are some things you've got to understand about this, okay? And, and you're going to understand my heart, I hope, by the time I'm through. First off, understand, this is the basis for a Mormon practice. Secondly, it has been utilized in branches and links of the Christian church in years past. You say, what? I never heard about that. There's a good reason for that. It was considered heresy. All right? It has never fallen within the mainstream of orthodoxy. Well, why not? What would be the point in being baptized for someone who's dead? That's what I thought. Nobody knows. Here's what it is. If you're going to embrace this practice, you must believe that baptism is essential to salvation, that baptism dispenses grace. Here's the concept. Uncle Frank. Anybody here named Frank? I want to make sure I don't have a Frank in here. I don't want to offend anyone. Let's say Uncle Frank was a scoundrel. Now, every family's got a scoundrel, right? Some families have... A whole lot of scoundrels and maybe one good person in the middle of it. But let's say Uncle Frank was a scoundrel. He lived a life that was embarrassing to the family. And maybe it was a family of scoundrels, but still his life was, I mean, it was over the top. The things he said, the things he did, the things he got involved with, the people he was with. I mean, it was just, it was horrific. The whole family was embarrassed about it. And Uncle Frank died. As far as we know, Uncle Frank never went inside a church. He never heard the gospel. He never knew anything about Jesus. He never had anything to do with Jesus. But a few years down the road, one of Uncle Frank's nephews came to know Christ. And one day, he heard about this thing about being baptized for the dead. And in his mind, he says, you know, if I can do that, maybe my baptism will dispense some grace on Uncle Frank, and Uncle Frank won't have to spend eternity in hell. Now, I just want you to know something. False. It does not work. Baptism does not dispense grace. It is not essential to salvation. I, I love the concept of baptism. I love the doctrine of baptism. I love the ordinance. I, I love being engaged in baptism. It's exciting, but understand, it does not save you. 
You say, well, I'm not sure that I believe that. Then you're going to have to check it out with the man that was on the cross next to Jesus when you get to heaven. You just ask him, were you ever baptized? Because, my friend, he was not baptized when he became a believer. He simply cried out to the Lord, and the Lord told him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he was, and he is. It had nothing to do with his baptism. Now, there was a point in time when church's history, whenever the church undertook to sell the rights for baptism of the dead. It was a way to get your beloved ones out of purgatory and into heaven. There are multiple problems with that, and I'm not going to go into it. Let's just suffice it to say it doesn't work that way. Say, well, well, then why would Paul write about this? There are two things I want you to see about Paul. Number one, throughout this chapter, if you've been reading this chapter along with me, Paul talks about us, us, we. There are those personal pronouns, but when he gets to this verse, did you see what he said? What will those do? You see, he's saying the practice does exist, but he's separating himself from it. I'm not part of that group. I don't believe that. I don't practice it. Well, how can you be so sure of that, Pastor? Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Paul explains to the Roman believers exactly what he believes and thinks about baptism. And baptism of the dead is not a part of that. It is an act of the living who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ and they follow the Lord in believers' baptism as a way of pledging themselves, identifying themselves with Jesus and setting themselves apart, live a life of discipleship. So what's it really mean? Let me just get down to this. I I can tell you this. I, I can study this thing. You can study this thing. We can do all the research. We can read all the different understandings and interpretations and definitions. It is impossible for us to state unequivocally what Paul meant. But we cannot escape the fact that Paul did not believe in baptism of the dead. His whole point was this, and I think sometimes we get so bogged down in the detail of this statement that we miss the big picture. You know what the big picture is? Here's what what Paul would want us to, to realize. If Jesus is not risen, baptism is meaningless Baptism for the dead is meaningless. Every act of worship is meaningless. If the resurrection did not happen, then everything we base our lives upon is meaningless. If there's no resurrection, what good is baptism? If there is no resurrection of the dead, what is our value in participating in the Lord's Supper? If he did not come forth from the tomb, what is the point in practicing stewardship? What is the point in praying? What is the point in serving? What is the point in trying to live a moral lifestyle that we can say is Christ-like? What's the point if he was not risen? But he is. And this is Paul's point. Understand that life is worth living because he lives. Without his resurrection, our pledge to follow, which is what baptism is, means nothing. Without his resurrection, our sacrifice and our service mean nothing. Look at what he says here in the middle of this portion, verses 30 through 32. And as for us, Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? 
If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I want you to hear something with me. I want you to understand something with me. Being a Christian in the first century was a risky proposition. In parts of the world today, being a believer is still a risky proposition. Paul speaks here of the dangers, the risks, the hardships, the sacrifices that he and other believers were making for the sake of the gospel. And he lists some of the things that they faced, endangering themselves. They, they put themselves out there. It wasn't that they were forced or, or that they were thrown or they were made to. No, they did it. They did it of their own free will. He says, man, go, go to Ephesus. Look at what's happening there. Go to, go, to, go to the Colosseum in Rome. Go to the, there were small places like that in every major city. Christians fighting against lions and tigers and bears and every imaginable kind of wild beast that could be turned in on top of them. Paul says that he died every day. People say, wait a minute, Paul didn't die every day. Paul's still alive. He's writing. You remember what Paul said? That he died because Christ lived in him. It's not something you do once, it's something you do every day. Every day you die to self so that Christ can live in and through you. He says, I died. Listen, what he was doing is trying to emphasize the reality that followers of Christ should face death every day, and many do for their faith. His argument's still the same. It's all useless if he's not risen. Why would we endanger ourselves for a corpse. There's no meaning to that. There's no reason for that. Friends, let me ask you a question. Have you ever considered why the gospel spread so quickly across the Roman world in the first and second centuries? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever thought about it? It wasn't that it was easy. It wasn't that everybody was just dying to hear the gospel and, and ready to embrace it and, and welcome those who came to preach the gospel. No, it wasn't like that at all. It was because these first century Christians believed so deeply in the resurrected Christ and the power of the gospel and the power of the resurrection that they were willing to lay their lives out there and die for their beliefs. The risen Christ still calls on people, individuals, to sacrifice. Probably all of us in this room can identify to some degree. We know, we know missionaries who've been, call, been called to leave their homes, to leave their families, to leave their countries, to, to move to another part of the world, to, to face a, a culture that they didn't grow up in, that they maybe don't completely understand, and they're having to try to figure out how to, how to fit in and how to serve in that place. Many of our brothers and sisters in the faith live in lands where they are called upon every day to live their lives as believers with the realization, the understanding that it could cost them their lives. They meet in darkened rooms, quietly fellowshipping together, listening to the Word of God, and waiting to see whether or not they get to leave that place of worship and return to their homes, or if 
they will be raided and dragged out. That's their reality. Man, when, when you think about that, your head ought to pop up and you say, this is pretty sweet. This is good. I mean, if you can't find pleasure in it, I, I had somebody ask me, well, did you go crazy last night? No, I didn't. But if you happen to look at my Facebook page, you saw the little picture of the guy jumping up and saying, hey, who's ready to get their praise on tomorrow? It's church day. We don't have to worry about whether or not we can come in or whether or not we're going to get dragged out. We can come and worship together and celebrate together and fellowship together and walk out in peace. And we ought to rejoice in that privilege every time we can. I get tickled sometimes listening to Christian people in our country, and I'm, I'm one of us. People talking about being ostracized or picked on in their workplace or their school because of their faith. Listen, folks, I, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just simply saying it, it beats having your head lopped off or your hands cut off or, or whatever else might happen because I'm telling you that happens in other parts of the world. You need to be prepared to realize that and accept that. It doesn't matter what God calls you to do. I mean, I always look across this congregation and I wonder because, you know, I, I see... I see retirees and I see grandparents who are investing in their children and their grandchildren. I see moms and dads that are doing the same. I, I look and I always see students and I see young adults and I wonder, who's God going to call out? Where's he going to send them? What's he going to do with them? Because I know he has a plan for everyone's life and some of those plans are going to involve going away from here. and doing. The, the, listen, a great church is not the church where you have a whole lot of people come in. It's where you have a church where a whole lot of people are going out. And, and, and I think that's what God wants to do, and I believe that's what he does if we listen and pay attention and follow. He calls us to sacrifice our lives to him and to serve wherever he sends us, to do whatever he calls us to. We may be called upon to do something that's minor, something that's major. Or anything in between. It may be something that takes two weeks. It may be something that takes two years. It may be something that takes your entire lifetime. But he calls us to that. But can I tell you something? His calling us to that means absolutely nothing if he didn't rise from the dead. If the resurrection did not happen, God's calling is pointless. It means nothing. Now let's take this down a little bit further, shall we? Without his resurrection, our efforts to live Christ-like mean nothing. You say, well, what do you mean to live Christ-like? What was Christ-like? Without sin. Perfect. Well, man, I can't get there. Nope, but we try, don't we? We are trying to follow him. This is the point of discipleship. We are trying to follow him. We are trying to be like him. We are trying to follow in his footsteps. We want, do we fail? Absolutely. Every day we fail. Do we live in the failure? Do we overcome the failure? Do we repent of the sin and try to turn from it and, and walk correctly? Absolutely we do. I had a young man tell me one time, preacher, I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You can't prove that to me. So I think this whole churchy thing is, is pointless. And I, I looked at him and I thought, okay, challenge accepted. You're right, I can't prove it to you. But I believe Jesus rose from the dead and you can't prove to me he didn't. And there are millions of people through the centuries who have agreed with me, have staked their very lives on it, have staked their reputations on it. Many of them have laid down their lives for it. And I believe I'm right and you're wrong. 
Friend, listen to me. There have always been those who reject the resurrection of Christ and resurrect the truth of the God, or reject the, the truth of the gospel. Do you know why? Because they want to do their own thing. Bottom line, here it is. We're humans, all right? There have always been those who choose to live their lives without any moral restraints. Chances are, you know some of them. I do. They choose to live their lives and do what they think is best, what feels good to them, what makes them happy at the moment. They're not worried about what comes after this life. They're not worried about eternity. They're not worried about serving one greater than themselves. In Paul's day, there was a group just like that. They were called Epicureans. And the Epicureans had a motto. Do you know what their motto was? I didn't think so. Do you have your Bible open? You can read their motto. It's there. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's nothing beyond, so let's party now. Let's just have a good time and do what we want, make ourselves feel. There are still people that live by that philosophy today. We call it hedonism. We call it moral relativism. We call it people satisfying themselves and their most base animal instincts. Jesus told a story about a man just like that. Did you know that? A lot of folks said, really? He did? Absolutely. Luke chapter 12, you'll find the record of a man who probably could have been an Epicurean. I don't, I'm not saying he was, but he could have been. He was a guy who looked around one day and said to himself, you know, self, you've done pretty good for yourself. You've got more than enough to live on the rest of your life, and, and man, you can have all kinds of fun. So you know what? I think I'll tear down my barns, build some bigger ones. Keep all my enterprises going. And while I'm at it, I'm just going to eat, drink, and party. He didn't think about how he could serve anyone else. He didn't think about anything he could do positive that might impact the world around him in a great way. No, it was all about himself. And, and you know, God looked at him and smiled and said, what a great guy. No. What did God say? You fool. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. Basically, God told him, you're going to die, and you don't get to take none of your stuff with you. It's not yours. It's mine. Still, why would anyone choose to live a morally upright life? I can give you the churchy answers. You know what the churchy answers? We want to reflect honor upon our Savior. He deserves that. He deserves our best. And so because of that, we need to watch our company. I mean, listen, I, if, I, if I could just have a dollar for every time my dad quoted this verse to me when I was a kid growing up. Bad company corrupts good character. I heard that so many Friday nights as I was going out the door when I was in high school. I got sick of it. But you know what? It's absolutely right. The company you keep will determine who you become. Paul says to these believers in Corinth, he says, come back to your senses as you ought to. Stop sinning. There's some who are ignorant of God. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Nothing like getting scolded, is there? You see, Paul wanted his readers, and that includes us, to know, to understand, to embrace the truth that the wrong kind of company will send you down the wrong road and bring you to the wrong end. It's a call for restraint. 
That, that's the churchy answer. But I know some of y'all are sitting here saying, well, yeah, that, that's just preacher talk. Okay. Have you sat in a room and watched someone die of AIDS? That came about because of their lifestyle. Have you sat and watched someone waste away because of cancer or cirrhosis or any other number of diseases that were self-inflicted? Have you ever had to work that accident where a drunk man took someone's life and walked away from it unharmed? Folks, hear me. There's a reason to choose moral uprightness. We can be spiritual and churchy about it, or we can get down to the nitty-gritty and the nuts and bolts. But here's the reality. Sin destroys. Sin kills. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is risen. He is alive. He is seated at the right hand of glory. And today he is interceding on your behalf and my behalf with the Father. So you have to choose. You have to choose. You either believe that he rose and everything that goes with it. Or you reject it. And you fall into the traps of this world. Listen, the meaning of Paul's message is so often lost when we bog down trying to understand details that don't make any sense to us. I've sat in the college classroom. I've sat in the seminary classroom. I've sat in the pastor's conference. I've sat and listened to all the debates about this baptism of the dead thing. And I want to tell you something. Who cares? The bottom line is this. Theologians can wrangle with that until Jesus comes again, and they will. And they will probably never get the right answer figured out until he shows up and says, let me explain it to you, boys. But in the meantime, there's a call to, to serve Christ, to follow him, to be faithful. I invite you this morning to to look past that 29th verse. Don't get bogged down there. Take, Take the wide view. Take the broad look and realize what Paul is saying. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no reason for baptism for the living or the dead. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the sacrifices that you make, the services that you offer mean nothing. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no good reason to try and live a Christ-like life. I've said it before, I'll say it again, I said it moments ago. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are the most pivotal moments in human history. Everything turns on that. The direction we choose to live turns on that you see that moment those moments in time that few days when he died was buried and rose again changed the course of world history the world as we know it today would not even exist without those events but I can make it a little more personal than that 
those events changed the course of my life. That empty tomb was where a body was laid. That body was laid there so that a sinful, sorry little boy in Enid, Oklahoma could one day find grace. But grace means nothing if the giver of grace is dead. He came forth. And when he walked out of that tomb, slid through the stone, went out the side wall, shot through the city. I don't know what he did. All I know is he's not there. And when he came out of that tomb, his grace became a reality that could touch me and could touch the world and can touch every one of us in this room this morning. Even you, if you've never experienced it before. It changed my life. And today he's ready to change yours. If you'll hear his call and respond. see friends here's the reality that Paul was trying to get to we'll get there before we get through this chapter even though it may take us a while I want you to hear me the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about salvation a living Lord gives life A dead religious leader offers nothing more than a grave where people can come and remember him. You can have your Buddha. You can have your Confucius and you can have your Muhammad. I choose Jesus. You sang it earlier. I want to remind you of it. Jesus, your name is power. Jesus, your name is life. Friend, everything that you sang about Jesus is true. Say, well, how do you know? Because I've experienced it. Have you? If not, this morning, I invite you. Meet my Jesus. And see if he won't change your life the way he changed mine. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of commitment. I want to invite you. I want to invite you. If you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if, if today you know something needs to happen in your life, there has to be more than what you're experiencing. There has to be a different way to live life than the way you're living it. I want to invite you. Meet my Jesus. I won't embarrass you or put you on the spot, but would you just come take me by the hand and say, Pastor, I need that relationship. I'd like to show you from God's word how you can become his child today. Brothers and sisters, are we living the hope that he's given? Or are we just plodding through the world? Are you just passing through life day by day, missing it? Don't miss it anymore. Today, I challenge you 
If you are my brother or sister in Christ, rejoice in the risen Lord. Rejoice in what he's done, what he is doing, and what he wants to do in your life. Make yourself available. What does he need to do in your life today? Hear his voice and let him have his way. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. It's a challenging word, but it's an inviting word. It's a word that calls us to follow you, to trust you, to believe you. Lord, I know that there are many in this world who've already made their decision. They've chosen to reject the risen Christ. They've chosen not to believe the resurrection is a historical fact. They've chosen. But Father, I pray that we would choose differently. I've chosen. Many in this room have chosen. We're going to follow you. We're going to pursue you. We're going to invite others to go with us. Father, I pray that today, if there's someone here who does not know you, your spirit right now would call them, draw them, invite them, bring them into the kingdom that we might rejoice with them. Father, this morning, I pray for my brothers and sisters, perhaps struggling with doubt, struggling with concern, struggling with sin, struggling with direction, struggling with purpose. May we look to Jesus this morning. May we seek his guidance. May we walk in it. Father, whatever you desire to do, however you would move in our lives, have your way. But we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.